0: Hi everybody, welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, senior editor at Billboard and Broadway fan here. So when I think about times in the past when I wish I had lived in New York City, I always immediately think of the late 1970s. Uh, Plenty of things in the city weren't so great back then. Maybe it wasn't as, as safe as it is now. But the music scene was definitely amazing. And that was thanks in part to two venues that have since gone down in rock history. Studio 54 was opened in Midtown Manhattan by the nightlife impresarios Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager in 1977, and with uh, the sort of glamorous theatrical interior that it had, it became a celebrity magnet until it was closed in 1980 when Rubell and Schrager were convicted of tax evasion. The trajectory of the club kind of mirrored the rise and fall of disco, and at its height, it attracted a who's who of music at the time, including Mick Jagger, Diana Ross, Grace Jones, Freddie Mercury, David Bowie, and many, many more stars. At around the same time, roughly 1978 to 1983 downtown, the Mud Club was catering to a more experimental, punk-leaning scene. The artists who performed there included Lou Reed, Talking Heads, and the B-52s. Considering how much interest there's been lately in the musical theater world in uh, kind of showing rock and pop history and music on stage, I've seen surprisingly little material working with this time period in particular. So I was intrigued when I heard about a new musical premiering off Broadway called This Ain't No Disco. I knew it would be covering the Studio 54 Mud Club era, but what was even more exciting to me is that the music and lyrics were co-written by Stephen Trask and Peter Yanowitz. Trask wrote the music and lyrics for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the cult-turned kind of classic rock musical, and Peter was the original drummer for The Wallflowers, and he played On Natalie Merchant's amazing first three albums and he actually also performed in the recent excellent Hedwig Broadway production a few years back uh, that Neil Patrick Harris was in uh, as a member of the Angry Inch, the band on stage. So Trask and Yanowitz call their show a rock opera, uh, but I recently saw it. It's not exactly the Who's Tommy or what I would traditionally think of as a rock opera. It is practically totally sung through, but it has this kind of unorthodox, meandering narrative, lots of different characters it follows, and it goes into a variety of sounds from the era and beyond throughout the show. Uh, we talked about all that and what inspired them uh, to make a musical about this moment in New York history, along with the stars of the show, Peter LaPraid and Samantha Marie Ware, on this week's episode. Shook
4: his face in my face, shook my heart against the wall, said you can't forget about university this fall. I can read the signs, I don't need a wake up call to tell this time I'm hung by a thread, but i have my fun.
0: This is like the most rock and roll crowd I've had on the podcast, which is very exciting. Um, Perhaps the most Billboard-appropriate Billboard on Broadway podcast ever. Um, Who are all you people I'm looking at?
1: All right. So I'm Stephen Trask, and I am one of the authors' uh, music lyrics book of uh, This Ain't No Disco, and I play keyboards and guitar in the band.
0: Ooh, I couldn't even see you. No, you can't see us. I knew you were there. I saw like some little glints of guitars, but you're you're well hidden. Thank you. <laughs>
5: Thank you. Hi, I'm Peter Janowitz. I am also one of the authors of the show uh, with Stephen, and I played drums in the show.
4: Amazing. I'm Peter LaPrade, and uh, I'm an actor in the show. I played Chad.
3: I am Samantha Marie Ware. I am also an actor in "This Ain't No Disco" the musical, um, and I play Sammy. All right. Well, I have to say, Peter and Samantha, I I've become
0: like fascinated by whether people are wearing wigs on stage or not, and mm-hmm. I'm amazed to see in person that you both have the amazing hair that yes. you have in the show. our <laughs> <laughs> <The> hair. <laughs> you this both have it. luxurious locks yes. on stage yes. and in person as well. Yeah. Um, well, I. I saw the show a week ago and loved it. And feels very, very different. And amazing performers. And um, been a fan of Stevens for a long time. And mm. a fan of other Peter's uh, previous work as well, uh, which maybe you can tell us a little bit about. Um, so, and wishing I had seen you in Hamilton, Sam. Uh, mm. <laughs> so uh, excited to have you all here. So, um, the first thing I want to ask like starts with the title of the show. This Ain't No Disco, which I know is Talking Heads reference. But the show, for most, much of it takes place in a disco. So <laughs> I wanted to ask, like, what? why was this the, the title that you uh, settled upon for the show? And is it meant to sort of convey anything about what the show is about?
1: Uh, you, you know, actually, the, the, in, in part of the song, so this ain't no disco, this Saint uh, uh, no fooling around, this ain't no mud club. Mm-hmm. Those CBGBs and we spend time in the Mud Club too as well yes <laughs> and inside and outside these clubs but for us and and actually in that song itself uh um the 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 person is that person is a revolutionary right living i don't know i've imagined in like greenpoint cemetery or something but i'm not really sure where <laughs> or for green park but but it's it's about life being a little bit more serious than what goes on in nightclubs mm-hmm. and um and I think that some, in some ways that's the, like our people find each other in the nightclubs, and the nightclubs are really important for that, but but, but, how they find each other and what they do once they do find each other is, is more important to us. And also it, 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 there is a tension when you have a character of Steve Rubell and, and you're in Studio 54 and you say this ain't no disco, you're like, oh, okay, then what is it? You know, mm-hmm. it, it imme- there's an immediate tension between the name and the expectation. Mm-hmm.
0: That makes sense. Um, I'm interested that it's sort of subtitled as being a rock opera, because I think of rock operas as feeling very stylized and very grandiose often. And I think one of the things that stood out to me about the show is like, it doesn't have a traditional, very like clear cut narrative structure. It feels sort of naturalistic, like you feel more like you're seeing sort of vignettes of people's lives and how they cross over together. So like, did you see it as kind of like furthering what a rock, op- op- rock opera can be in a way? Or like, why did you think of it in that way?
5: Yeah, we were interested in writing a, a different kind of show that, that we had ever seen before. And um, the idea of a, like a long poem or extended piece of music that that can have interweaving narratives, much like a you know an Altman film or a Mike Lee film, just with different characters coming in and out. and um
1: Yeah, you know in, 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 in film they call it networked narratives where, where, where the, the, the cum- it's the accumulation of all the different story arcs that tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And that was one of our things and, ha- and having it feel like a long poem, like one long piece of music. Um, and it is, and you know, one of the things that, that we tried to really hold on to uh, um, it, it is, is not over telling the stories with, with, these, like, with these like endless, I don't know, endless narrative and to, set to lyric that just makes you want to put a gun to your head. Um, <laughs> you know, you do it as, as much as you need to, but people go to the opera. I mean, I, I remember, like I've seen opera before and I've never seen it in English. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, st- I still cry, you know, <laughs> like, like, I'm still like, I'm incredibly moved and, I, and, and, and it just never stops. The thing never stops moving and people bawl and they don't know what, I, what anyone's saying. So, you know, somehow to, to, to get people on that wave of emotion is really the point.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, you two feel about that being like sort of in the middle of it?
3: <laughs> being in the middle of a rock <laughs> Of opera? the show, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun. Like, I've always, I mean, I'm an eccentric, like, beautiful black woman. But I was, like, (laughs) born born and raised in, like, Nebraska um, with, like, a stepfather who, like, listened to, like, anything from here to, like, from Ice Cube to, like, Pink Floyd. So, like, Mm -hmm. I get to, like, you know, in this show, because I also do spoken word, so I get to experiment with, you know, a little bit of, like, almost, like, hip-hop and then dive into that kind of world so it's a lot of fun for me and it's different from anything I've ever seen on stage or anything I've ever played so
4: yeah it's definitely unlike anything else I've ever done uh, a show being entirely sung through is um, hard,
3: hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah
4: yeah it's hard and it's not, it's not even <laughs> something that you really think to prepare yourself for until you're you know you're doing it and you're like wow you're just singing non-stop for like Two and a half hours <laughs> or whatever, however long yeah. we're, we're running now th- these days. But um, yeah, the music is what I think makes it okay. You know, the music is good enough that you can listen to it for two and a half hours. You know, it's not the kind of music where like people are just singing about aimless tasks. Like you were saying, like it's not just notes set to menial, banal sentences. It's, you know the lyrics are poetry it's telling a story or it's conveying some kind of inner truth about somebody yeah so um it's hard physically but it's not hard mentally it makes sense as one big piece of music
0: mm-hmm well i was i was i'm sorry i interrupted no, I was just you just saying,
1: I, I was at uh, after the show, I went for drinks with with Darko Tresniak and 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 my parents and Darko's a lot of our, he's our, our director. director and yeah. a lot of my parents and a lot of my relatives and friends of my parents from when they went to high school um, and earlier. And he was talking about how difficult it is this piece is technically. Mm-hmm. And he said there are he said it's the most difficult technical piece he's done. There are over two thousand lighting cues called during the course of the show. Whoa. <laughs>
4: Damn, I was just like, "Wow!" Mm. I mean, it's really
1: just—we, it's—we're kind of pushing the limits of what you can do off Broadway. Mm-hmm. It's we are like—we're too big—we're too big for the
4: space. There's like 2,000 cues. We just—it's just—it's—it's it's insane. It's a loud show and a little. Yeah. Little room. Yeah, yeah,
0: but I was going to say that. I mean, to all of your credit, it doesn't come across as like tortured or like overly complicated in any Thank way. You. It certainly doesn't read that way to an audience. I mean, this actually plays into what I was going to say, which is that I think that one of the uh, challenges of a show that deals that kind of takes this unorthodox form and deals with this particular era is that I think of so much of the music of the '70s and '80s as kind of maybe not disco in particular is kind of being about this like ineffable coolness sort of and <laughs> um sort of the 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 challenge of putting that on stage in a the in a theatrical context and not making it feel like theater right. um, it seems like it would be something like that you all have to kind of grapple with and figure out
1: Ineffable coolness is a really good phrase.
0: Thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Should we just
4: stop? <gasps> yeah. Not before I put it on a t-shirt.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how I can go on after that. Um, well, Stephen, I want to start just rewinding with you a little bit because, if I'm correct, this is your first big musical project post-Hedwig, correct? To, musical theater.
1: To, to actually get to the stage, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so... I was curious, you know, if if you anticipated how huge Hedwig would kind of become for you. Did you plan to do musical theater beyond that? And why did this eventually become that next project for you?
1: Um, well, so in some ways, it became the next project because other projects died in the vine. So, um, you know, um, one of one of which I was writing with Peter Yanowitz, um, uh, um, and um, this one you know when when so this started off as a book musical and it was much more traditional mm-hmm. and and when we took it over and made it and wanted to make it into a sung through just one long poem piece of music it became very personal to us and that which I don't by which I don't mean we were telling our stories but but uh, but it became really important and I think I think the the, the degree to which it touched our souls was was so strong that we could not let it go. We could not keep pushing it through. Um, and and we were sort of challenged. I think we broke every rule we could possibly do. We could possibly break, and we were just having fun doing that. You know, like, okay, let's make it sung through. And then we got to the phone call scene with Ian Schrager, because uh, we don't have Ian Schrager, so we have him out, out of town <laughs> and out of the country on vacation. And so we had a phone call, and we were like, I don't want to hear somebody sing a phone call. That's just awful. So we're like, all right, well, let's write a dialogue scene, and so that became the first rule. Okay, no phone, no sung phone calls, <laughs> and um, and uh, but like sung through, it never stops. It's not about a story that anybody knows. It's going to be a networked narrative without with leads, but also all these. Every we tried to break every single rule we could, which is just endless fun.
0: Mm-hmm. So but I mean in terms of the inspiration for like this has to be a musical was it was it that you felt this sort of eras music wasn't represented in theater or like why did it you, you, you know come the first it, it is what,
1: it is one of those weird moments where 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 people think people think 70s and it immediately there's like a kitsch factor mm. when you when you think 70s right and 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 people think of disco and they think cheese, right? And they, and, and, and they look at, and, and you know what? It wasn't, people went against disco because it was the music of black people and gay people. So that's that. Mm-hmm. And, and 79, <laughs> um, and 1979 <laughs> was probably like peak music year. You know, 1979 was was when Nile Rodgers put a stamp on disco. 1979 was when the B-52s came out. 1979 mm-hmm. was when the Clash peaked and when and when and when Blondie peaked. In 1979, mm-hmm. you know, it was like you just go go down the list. That's when Michael Jackson put out Off the Wall. 1979 is when Prince put out his first, you know, album with a hit. Like, you know, like this was like a big, big, big year mm-hmm. at, in music. And and it was the year before. All the recording technology changed in the, re, in the recording studio. So it was the last year where people were working with equipment that they'd been perfecting since like the 30s, recording equipment they'd been just getting better at and be- getting. And then by the next year, all the stuff was starting to be different in the studio. So everything sounds... If you go back and listen to music of 1979, it sounds really good. And everyone is just at the top... The, everything mm-hmm. is at the top of its game. It's not kitschy and it's not goofy. It's, it's awesome.
0: That's a very good point. I have to interject, actually, that um, everyone listening and also you all here should uh, check out the Billboard Pride issue that we just put out because we had a great uh, reported story about the origins of modern dance music in uh, the specifically black gay men of the 70s dance scene, um, which is super interesting and uh, and a really good piece about the B-52s as well.
1: <laughs> who, who, who are credited with teaching... When they first played it, performed at the Mud Club, mm-hmm. and they got people to dance, and they were credited with teaching the hipsters to dance. Yes, that it was, that it was cool to dance.
0: Yes, yes. That's what's so great about them. Um, so, when did you all's collaboration start? How long have you worked together? And Peter, did you always want to work in the world of musical theater after um, having no. a lot of rock
5: cred? <laughs> no, I met Stephen about twelve years ago at a writing retreat in the middle in the middle of Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> It was yeah, randomly. I you know I'm a writer from the rock and roll world, and I went to this retreat and. Uh, you can say what it was. Yeah, is it the w- it is. Come on. wait? Is it oh, the I know
0: what it is. Is it the one that Hanson
5: wrote? Yes. <laughs> How do you know about Hanson? I mean, oh well. Anyway. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, I've I've sort of at my previous job at New York Magazine, I sort of became in-house Hanson historian. Yeah, I've interviewed them many times.
5: <laughs> yeah, we love them. I love them. Yeah, yeah. They they randomly invited both of us to one of their their retreats at their compound in Oklahoma, and we flew out everything. there. And, <laughs> and we're
1: not Mormon. That's the one of the first things they say. We're not Mormons.
5: Yeah, okay. and we we got put in a room together on the last day. It's a sort of situation where you get paired up with people, and mm. and we met and connected, and then finally the last day of the retreat, they put us together because we asked to be put together, and. We just started a conversation musically together that day. That I think we've continued on for twelve years, where we're finishing each other's sentences, putting melodies and words in each other's heads, heads and just just sort of breaking any rules songwriting wise. <laughs> where we where we we just started a conversation, which I think is really what writing for theater is about: is one long conversation because it's. Hours and hours and hours and hours of talking, and then the writing is very, a very little part of that. But when I got home from that re- that retreat, uh, Stephen called me and asked me if I would had ever thought about writing for the theater, and I lied and said, yeah. Even though you, know, you even were though. lying, well, my mom is from Queen. My mom's from Queens. For one second, just
1: say something because I was working on two shows and I knew I needed a co-writer on one, and and one of them I I wanted to have a kind of Prince influence. And Wendy and Lisa said they would be my co-writers, and I ditched them for you.
5: Well, there you go. So. Sorry, Wendy and Lisa. So there yeah. you go. Anyway, they. Uh, yeah, basically I'd grown up going to theater because my mom was sort of like a Broadway baby from Queens and she she's always brought me to theater. And, and when she comes to town, I see pretty much 10 shows in a week. And, and I've always been a fan, but coming more from rock and roll, I, I never really thought about writing. But when Steven asked me, I, I always like, trying to run into things that sort of scare the shit out of me and and that was one thing that was like God I've never thought about this and it seems really scary but yeah why not and, mm-hmm. and I loved Steven from the get go so so it was a pretty easy decision um, especially because I was a fan of his work as well so it was pretty exciting
0: So I just want to like say that Hansen is secretly responsible for everything that exactly. we're talking yeah. about which is amazing
1: I by the way met Hansen because they, they came to see Hedwig at Sundance, and they were like uh-huh. it was their first trip without their parents, and their handlers were all gay men, and and <laughs> we met hanging out at a at a private pool sauna hot tub party at Gus Van Zandt's <laughs> place. Jesus, <laughs> that's it. just, that sounds <laughs> <was, that laughs> got better as it went <laughs> All right, so I just just want to just want to throw that in.
0: Thank God, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Am I right that the two of you are like a little too young to have like been to Mud Club?
5: Yeah, yes. I'm 50, Stephen's 51. We we just missed that scene. I didn't get to New York until like the mid to late 80s and... 90s.
1: Uh,
5: no, I mean, I I was on the East Coast. Yeah, right. anyway. Oh. um, And... Uh, sorry, you threw me off. Oh, I'm but, sorry. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. Well, you said we were finishing each other's sentences. Yeah. But, <laughs>
0: This is like the odd couple. <laughs> um,
5: but, you know, I think, you know, the show in general is such a love letter to New York. You know, I, I came to New York over 25, like 25 years ago to live. And once I got here, I was just like, I mean, I grew up in Utah, you know, Jewish, surrounded by so many people that were different than me. And I once I got to New York, I just was like, I fell in love immediately. And I knew that I would never leave. And, and in a way, the show became like a a way of like loving New York, especially the show takes place in 1979, which we've talked about, but it, it's a way of trying to get close to that, that time that we couldn't really be a part of, you know? Mm-hmm. And,
0: and you, yeah. I mean, and, you know some of these people who were well, part of the scene, I think. I, mean, I,
1: I, I, you know, I also, I, I, I started, I started coming to New York, I guess as a kid we'd, we'd come and then high school and college came a lot. Because uh, uh, it was a short drive from Wesley in in, which is in Connecticut, um, and then and then started my first club was Pyramid, mm-hmm. um, and I worked at at this club Squeeze Box where we started, uh, where 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 we started Hedwig, and that's still like a family, and I so I know what that feeling is of a nightclub being a place where where like minded, and it was in fact the whole point of Squeeze Box was that there was no place for like queer people who liked rock and punk to go out like Mm -hmm. and actually enjoy the night because it was all disco music and so um and so it was like punk rock and and alt rock and you but you'd also like hear motown songs and whatever and we and 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 it was a drag queen performing with live bands and and it just became an instant scene very much actually like studio 54 but smaller and not as you know, snazzy like a John <laughs> Waters version of Studio Fifty Four, and so I, I, and I'm still friends with, with like all of those people, mm-hmm. and and so, um, what was the question? Oh, <laughs> I did have you know I had one encounter. I will say this: I had one encounter with Steve Rubell that I didn't even realize was him until until we were researching this, and I found out that he ran the Michael Todd Room. But I promoted a film event for the opening of Nightmare on Elm Street Four or three or something at Michael Todd room. And everyone's like, this guy you're meeting, he's a very important club owner, which was a concept I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> important <laughs> club owner, what is that? And um, and we interacted a little bit. And they're like, was it exciting to meet him? It's like, I don't know who he is. And then at the end of the night, as we we're getting ready to leave, um, he said, he asked me if I could run a favor, do a favor for him. And he handed me a brown paper bag of cocaine <laughs> and said, can you go bring this to Robert England's dressing room? Robert England play, played Freddy Krueger, and so my one my one experience with Steve Rubell was running cocaine to a movie star.
0: Uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good life story. <laughs> and then he, and I, I didn't even realize it was him until like last year. I was like, oh my god, he ran the Michael to. Oh my god, that was him who handed me that cocaine.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. So you two, who um, definitely were too young to have uh, experienced this, um, what did you kind of know of the music of this era? Were you fans? Did you have to kind of go through 1979 immersion period before getting into this? Um,
4: I grew up listening to the music that my Mm -hmm. parents listened to, and uh, they were also um, a little bit too young to have been there. But, uh, you know, the music of the 70s particularly – um, like rock and roll of the '70s was always in my house, and um, and so was so was disco. Honestly, you know, when I started doing like research about the show and the time period, and like making sure I knew every you know reference in the script that was something historical that I wouldn't have been alive for, um, I started listening to a lot of music from the time period, and um, you know, you just know these disco songs. Everybody just knows them. I don't know how. But I was like listening to the Apple Music like disco essentials, and I was like, "Why do I know every single one of these songs?" But they're just like part of our culture now. Um, and Stephen and I had talked actually previously about this the stigma around like disco music and why that came to be. And I don't know. I never really, I never had that. I just like music if it's fun, if it makes me think about something, if it makes me feel something, then. I like it. I've never I've never had like a specific genre that I stuck to. So uh, the music of this time period was definitely already in me, I think.
3: I think it's just me as like I've I'd seen like visuals and like pictures and things of like, you know, the iconic like Diana Ross at the at the DJ booth with someone holding onto her ankles like for the last party, right? Yeah. Um and also because I had like a slight obsession with Grace Jones for a little bit after someone showed me like a David Letterman interview where she shows up like twenty minutes late into the interview and is like, I had to eat. And I was like, I have to know who this Steve Irons is. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, like most of the pictures that are online of her like at like Studio 54 with just like titties out and just like carefree <laughs> which is what I aspire to be all the time. Has Peter I know, notes. I know it is. <laughs> so we share a dressing room, kind of. Kind of. Oh, yeah. Can I just say
1: I like music, any kind of music, and I got the music in me were two hits in the seventies. Like it's a seventies <gasps> oh ethos. God. Wow. It's the
4: ineffable coolness. It's ineffable coolness. Mm. Yes.
0: Or effable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I was, I I see a lot of different influence, possibly, in each of your characters. I I don't see either of them being a a stand-in for one person. But, like, watching you, Peter, I even get, I get, like, a little Claude from Hair and a little bit of, like, Pippin a little bit, too. Um, And then, I mean, you mentioned Grace Jones uh, a bit, and, like, maybe a little Joan Armitrading. And, like, uh, um, so I was curious, kind of, like, who... If anyone you're kind of drawing on for inspiration and uh, in conceptualizing the two of them, if you were thinking of anyone uh, in particular.
3: Recently, I've been, I don't know, I've been, uh, Lenny Kravitz, this for the like, the list of the week has been my poll just because like Questlove posted like this huge like bio about I don't know if you saw that. Um and so then I like of course like dove and in, dove into that world and was like, oh yeah, you know, let me tap into that. But I mean it I guess it changes for me at least because there's so many but
4: yeah, that's a really uh interesting question. I um I don't think I think about it consciously. I mean, I I could sit here and like think of examples of people that I guess I I maybe like take energy from or inspiration from in that way, but I don't, it's not like a conscious decision. I think really, again, it just goes back to the music. Like I, I have a lot of different songs in the show that have a different feel to them, a different, a totally different genre, you know, from one number to the next. And I think, you know, you just kind of have to, be truthful to whatever that moment is. The thing about the character that I'm playing is that he and I are similar in a lot of ways. So a lot of it is just for me trying to be honest to the story, you know? And then if you're really doing that, the energy of the music or the song will, will come, you know, and it will, yeah, it will reveal itself. And, and that might look like, you know, you know, Uh, something from hair or it may have like a Mick Jagger energy to it, or it may have like a softer, like Simon and Garfunkel energy to it. It just, you know, it's all just about being honest to moment to moment.
0: And so much of what both of your characters are about to me too, is that they're like trying on different styles and kind of trying to find what's authentic to them, so hearing them sing in these different ways well, kind of searching a number, in this like, show. Like, like, <laughs> the,
1: the character that Peter plays is twenty, so like I have to think like like when I was twenty, like how, like how much how many things did I try and how many stupid identities did I go through before <laughs> yes. I was like, you know, how much how many times did I make a fool of myself in public, like uh, you know, and then finally, you know, fi- figure out where I was going, like mm-hmm. and 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 and. And Sam's character is 22. These are, these are really young people.
2: With a child. With a child. Mm-hmm.
4: A cute She
0: child. got a lot going on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's not
4: a spoiler. It's revealed very early in the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> before,
0: before
1: anything
4: really happens almost. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah.
0: She has a lot going on. It's true.
1: I actually, I think since you saw it, uh, um,
5: the child is the first thing you see in the show.
0: Oh, yes. It's true. With the disco ball.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. So that was there. I
5: yeah. would like to point out, too, uh, that this is not necessarily answer that question, but we were lucky enough to meet Peter right at the very last like audition, basically, to, for Chad. But Samantha has helped us develop the show over several workshops and, and ingrained herself in our minds so much that she actually shaped the character and the direction that we wanted to take her in musically and emotionally. Uh, we, we saw a lot of that. Not that Samantha is Sammy, but we just saw the the potential for such an extraordinary. The character's
1: already named
5: Sammy. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, wasn't that wasn't the character was already named Sammy, and then Samantha came in and just kind of blew us away at a workshop, and we we're like, "Whatever we do, you're doing it with us," because you, you know you're incredible. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you know, I just realized about you, you're you're kind of getting to be on like a tour of the decades of pop music in your work lately because you, I mean, coming out of Hamilton and more yeah. of a hip-hop moment and now having this like 70s and 80s moment and I saw you're going to be in Girl from the North Country as well so you'll have like your rewind a little to the Dylan moment. Sure, yeah, I'm <laughs> That's pretty yeah. exciting. That's cool. Um, well, I i did want to talk about the music a bit because there there were some songs that felt like they were very much supposed to be in a certain kind of seventies or like a disco idiom or a sort of like mud clubbish idiom. And then there are other songs that just sound straight ahead, like a Stephen Trask song to me and sort of not like tied to any, um, decades particular style. Um, the song that Andy Warhol, who's not Andy Warhol things, uh, the artist. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but we, we co-write every single song. Yeah. So I was, um, I was curious as you were kind of going through the show, like, how did you kind of navigate those stylistic differences? What was appropriate for each moment?
1: Um, you know, like so, so. The opening song, the opening song, and and a friend of my parents picked this up. She, she was like, "That's like a hymn." Am I wrong? Is that a hymn? And I was like, "No, it's specifically a hymn." Like we got we we got the we, the, the song is called "The Dance Floor Is Waiting," mm-hmm. and it's about the anticipation of going to this place that you can only imagine where the common people and the famous people are all together and there's angels and different levels of cherubs and angels and, the, and then the Lord and, and it's this fantasy place and, 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 and we took, and, and, Peter had this book of hymns and he found this, this one called A Heaven is Waiting and it described this vision of heaven um, and, and it was, and the, one of the switches that we did was it says that that um, nighttime never falls in heaven, but we switched it to day. To daylight day never comes over there. No, day never day never falls over there. But it's all. But the ethos of like famous people and 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 the common and ascendant is what we say. Um, but we we adapted that language and that hymn to become a dance floor's waiting, and then wrote it in a kind of Benjamin Britten style, and then. Per, Produced it like it was a mirror wide track for Madonna, um, so so everything is like super high concept like that. And of course, you have to when you get to the dance floor at Studio Fifty Four, which takes a long time to get there. You, you have to have a disco number, and it has to be a disco number that's not like you know. It has to be a big disco production number, um, and uh, um, and and then other things. You know, you just kind of feel what does this moment call for? This moment calls for. This moment calls for some punk rock, and 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 um, you know when you start you start going for XTC, and you end up Thomas Dolby working with Joan Armatrading, and and he's like, well, okay, that's cool. That's like uh, that's exactly that moment, and uh-huh. and um, so you don't you don't like land on it exactly necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but I, were, were we specific about our style?
5: Yeah, we we didn't want to be too on the nose about anything, and I think we did have some rules, but. Those rules basically, you know, involved what our tastes were and what, what we could, you know, digest and want to listen to ourselves. Uh, you know, like you said, the artist song, One Night Trip Sickery, sounds, I think, more contemporary to, than most songs in the show. It sounds like maybe a, a song like Arcade Fire or, you know, a song that could be written now or, you know, and then there's a lot of songs that we really pay to particular attention to detail and wanted it to just sound like it could have come out of that era of music i think we're pretty loose with our r- rules but the bottom line is like our taste and what we want to hear you know and, and it's theater so it can be heightened and it doesn't have to be so on the nose like all from that era with all those sounds even though we did try to do that for a lot of it, it mm-hmm. it's like sammy sings this song soliloquy which is a really powerful moment in the show and i don't Necessarily think that's from that era, I feel like that could just be any you know time you know period, in the last twenty years you know,
1: and then weirdly it makes reference to carousel which had a song called soliloquy which we didn't know yes. when we when 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 we called it soliloquy sure, and Joshua
3: Henry and,
1: and, and then it even like like even further like both songs are about a person trying to like try, trying to um uh, um. Uh, uh, um uh sort sort of discuss like well this is my life but I also have a responsibility to a child mm. which is the which is oh the same God, subject matter and I had we had no clue until mm. until it's after kind of fine timing and I was like oh look
4: at that that's
0: so funny also the last episode of the podcast was carl oh, sure was here <laughs> <laughs> it was all meant to be yes. um and I mean, for the two of you, I, I, it's obvi- I would think it's like super exciting to be working on a show with composers who are living and in, in the room. Um, <laughs> so, but I mean, right,
3: but right. Um, yeah.
5: Yes. Stop. Oh, oh my stones. God. <laughs> Until. For the listeners now. at
4: home, Stephen just feigned a heart attack. It was not funny. <laughs>
3: that
1: funny.
4: Oh, that means that that means I'm old. <laughs>
3: But you're totally right i mean um, i'm always thirsty yeah. for something new and something fresh and something honest and something now and something here and something that reflects the times i mean not this is this i mean is not i mean a period piece but is it i don't know is kind it of. yeah yeah but, um but i mean yeah
4: this project is a million and one dreams come yeah. true and in every literal sense of the word all cliches aside it really really is and like and I totally I think it is totally of the times. Mm-hmm. It's a period piece about the late seventies, early eighties. But um, unfortunately, we still have a lot of work to do in the world. A lot of the same work we had to do back then. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a moment at the end of the show where you like hear some some radio buzzes here and there about like things coming in the next year and and how the world is changing from the seventies to the eighties and. It was a very distinct shift in the country uh, at that time. And we're obviously in a big shifting period of time right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the show is happening now because it's supposed to happen right now.
3: There was a really cool moment that, I don't know, I'm just gonna bring this up, but like someone, something happened in the audience. Like we had someone faint, so we had to like stop last the night. show. Oh my gosh,
4: just last night, yeah.
3: And I almost felt like at that moment, like we were all kind of looking at each other, like, wow, we're really just like in this moment right now, it's just us. And like, in this room and like nobody else and so like I feel like at that point in the show like it heightened somehow I don't know if you felt that too You're I'm totally like on right. a weird like it, it, spiritual pick right now yeah. but it was like almost like well, um, Darko or Tr- 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 sorry, sorry. Chesnack Tr- like brought up the other day like during notes he was like you have to like think about it as we have this song called "The Last Party," and he's like, "You you never know." These people who are like, you know, like living the the peak of their lives, never know when it's going to be their, la- you know, our last day on Earth. And at, sometimes it feels like when we're on this planet right now, with, like the news and everything that's going on, like some people don't actually know when our last day on Earth is. And so it's like we like had to sit with that for a moment, and that was like a moment last night where I was like, "Whoa!" Because we didn't know if the person who had fainted was like either having a heart attack or like he was there with us, or was you know what I'm saying. So like yeah. there's like moments like that like kind of like push you into the presence like oh we have a responsibility to tell this story now yeah. and, like we don't we
4: might not have the chance to tell it tomorrow and on that same uh, the person was fine yes they yes, got yes, yes they medical were. attention God they blessed. were fine <laughs> but we did hold the show for a second and I'd never experienced something like that and in that moment of like okay our, the guest is fine we're gonna start again we're all just kind of like alright in our place on stage and the audience is there and that like veil between us is gone for a second and it was really crazy to feel like oh we're all in this room together experiencing the same thing and I think this show is um, I don't know healing in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. yeah there's plenty to be
5: afraid and scared Um, about what's you know fear what's going on in the world and the show is uh, this show particularly at this time has acted like a little band-aid for all of us I think and there's a line in our show, you know, live this night as if it was your last. And that's what's that about to be Which sung. Was, yeah, yeah and, not moment yeah, last night David really to it it snapped it into like <laughs> place. <but> and <laughs> yeah. it, so uh, 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 the,
1: when when, the dis- when Steve Bell signed, fi- the the whole first act is leading to, is like the anticipation of getting to the dance floor. And we finally get to the dance floor, and that's when this happened. And, the, and when the band kicks in and the number and Steve Rebell sings, we can repent misspent time that's passed or live this night as if it was our last. And I think everyone was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Carry
4: on,
1: carry on. I also had a tremendous amount of family in the audience and I kind of freaked out.
0: Oh, that's a lot. Well, the, I mean, I was gonna say that it's, um, the, the theater that you're in is such a sort of intimate room that I would think that even when someone isn't possibly having a heart attack in the audience, there's a feeling of immediacy for all of you, whether in the band or on stage, oh, that yeah. doesn't often come in theater.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of the songs, a lot of the direction is like downstage center closer than i am to you right now mm-hmm. you know singing at them you know looking them in the face intentionally its yeah. it's confrontational how close is the,
1: the 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 lip of the stage the stage is seven inches high so it's not it's not <laughs> it's we're, like, yeah. we're barely raised so basically basically it's I like high heels is
3: definitely landing on chins yeah. oh my god <laughs> <laughs> like, so yeah. the stage
1: is seven like, inches high and 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 you c- if you're in the front row you can't stretch your legs even and not be on the yeah, stage yeah, right
4: yeah yeah no way. <laughs>
1: It's like it's like it's basically where the next row would be. That's mm-hmm. where the stage goes. So if you're down, if you're all the way downstage, you're you're in, you're in the house.
0: Yeah. And Theo is sometimes in people's laps, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, I, I think that um, one of the things I find myself returning to talking to, uh, people who have new shows is just this idea that, you know, of how the definition of what musical theater is, is changing, I think for the better to not, um, be what it always traditionally has been. Um, and, uh, speaking again to how immediate the show feels in this space, um, you know, I think it's, I'm always interested to hear people who are behind a show talking about, is this the kind of show you would want to turn into a Broadway production? Is it not meant for that kind of context? Um, and I think sometimes, often, there are great shows that, like, Broadway is not the ready. the yeah. setting for them. Or, you know, or not even ready for it, but just, like, you know, there's, there's value to a show being done in, in a different way and in right. a different kind of space. So I'm just curious to hear... How you all feel about that? With this St. no disco.
1: If this doesn't go to Broadway, I'll jump off a building. <laughs> perhaps <laughs> perhaps this one. So what's
5: oh that? a lot of no, death threats no
1: no, 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 this <laughs> is this is this is written for Broadway. We we we, we like we, we we like it. I mean, people who sit in the front row, they're like. I almost felt rude clapping. <laughs> like 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 I'm in I'm like clapping in their face and I want to clap enthusiastically but it almost feels like I'm going to slap somebody. Like like I do feel like like our our bandmate, our band members on the third level, they there's two our two tallest people are up there. If they if they moved their chair, they wouldn't fit. <laughs> like they are in the one spot that they can be and still play their instrument. Um, yes, you know, it would be yeah. nice. And, and the set comes out into this. I mean, we we could you could stand back a little bit and not and and still actually feel like it's immersive. Yeah. Because the set actually actually finishes the actual the, the 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 part of the set finishes over like the sixth row on the ceiling. Like there's, oh, yeah. there's those panels and they and they go mm-hmm. and and you're 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 kind of right in like, yeah. you're in the show.
0: Yeah.
5: yeah um
1: we could you can step back i don't like to be closer than the fifth row when i'm out there
5: Mm -hmm. yeah i think we're sort of bursting out of that theater but it seems also like a perfect place to be discovering what the show is at the atlantic theater it's just a beautiful it is a church that was converted into a theater which is sort of part of new york's history of buildings being repurposed even studio itself used to be studio 54 used to be uh a TV studio and then it got turned into a movie theater and then it got turned into a Broadway theater. And now it's
0: things are truly full circle for the yeah, show. So, I was realizing, I was like now studio 54 is part of Broadway and, yeah.
5: and our, in and our, and our show studio 54 and it, and acts as a sort of church in itself, you know, of getting, mm-hmm. you know, to the other side and heaven, you know, is waiting. And, I, I think the, the question about would, we'd love for this show to go to Broadway, we'd also love it to be a movie. We, we, have, we have huge dreams for the show, you know, but right now we're here in the Atlantic and it feels perfect, you know?
1: Mm. Yeah. It's funny, we're, we're, we're their biggest show that they've done.
0: Oh, interesting.
5: But
1: when we started, we were like their smallest show. Because when, huh. when we first pitched a sung-through musical to Neil Pepe at the Atlantic, because he'd seen the workshop where it didn't work as a book musical, and we reconceived it as a sung-through. And We pitched it to him on one snowy night in January of 2016. This re this rethink of the show, and he came by Peter's. P- Peter has this great recording studio um, that I stay at a lot when 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 I'm in town working, and um, and he came over one night after work, and we just pitched him our idea, sang him a little bit, and he said, "Okay." Let's do something together. We're halfway through the season, so we have no money, but we can give you a week in our basement. (laughs) and that and so we started at the smallest scale and then and then and we'll give you some support and then people kept on giving us personnel support and then they'd say we can make some photocopies for you but just don't tell anybody and then people kept sneaking photocopies for us until finally they're like we're we're getting reports we're making too many photocopies for you like they had no (laughs) money for us at all but um so we just saved but it was so we went from being from being literally just you can camp out in our basement for a bit to being their biggest production ever
0: it's how a revolution starts in the basement.
1: In, in two years. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. We're really, really lucky to be at The Atlantic right now. I think everybody, um, I mean, I know, I can definitely go ahead and speak for everybody in the cast in this regard that we really, really love this work. And it feels really special and really um, safe. It feels like a safe place for all of us to be. And it feels like we're doing something important. And I know we would love for the show to have a life. A life beyond this and it will you know i mean I, I don't i think it's it's presumptuous to know or to presume to know what that's going to look like but i think this is just the beginning for this story in the crowd, in the rush-
0: St. No Disco is playing at the Atlantic Theatre Company through August 12th. If you're a fan of Billboard on Broadway, please subscribe on iTunes. Please give us lots of stars and nice reviews if you feel so inclined. If you would like to find me on social media, my Twitter is at Rebecca Millsoff. My Instagram is at Yadown with RMM. You can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway to send your thoughts about the podcast into the atmosphere. And hope to have you back next week.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European Linen,